Hi, I'm Asha Tomlinson. And I'm David Common. And we're hosts of CBC Marketplace. We're award-winning investigative journalists that want to help you avoid clever scams, unsafe products, and sketchy services. Our TV show has been Canada's top investigative consumer watchdog for more than 50 years. But this is our first podcast. CBC Marketplace podcast is available now on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Conflicting care. A trans member of Alberta's UCP is clear she still supports the party, but not clear on why Premier Danielle Smith wants to impose new rules about the medical care trans children will have access to. Intractable on tractors. Farmers descend en masse on EU headquarters in Brussels, clogging the streets with their equipment to show how poorly equipped they are to deal with unwelcome new regulations and rising costs. You gotta know when to fold them. After decades, it is snake eyes for the Tropicana Las Vegas. A mob historian explains how the casino once known as the Tiffany of the Strip helped transform Sin City. Not just names in a report. The coroner's inquest into the mass stabbing at the James Smith Cree Nation has delivered its recommendations. A family member of two victims says calls to action are important, but so is understanding the people at the center of the tragedy. This magic marmot, so different and so new. Wyerton has Willie, Punxsutawney has Phil, and one Quebec town has its Fred Lamarmont. Fred's press agent tells us why this Groundhog Day he won't be the Fred Lamarmont he used to be. And a real zest for life. Several lives so far. The surprising discovery of a 285-year-old lemon leads to the even more surprising discovery that people will pay over $2,000 for a really old lemon. As it happens, the Thursday edition, radio that will never run out of juice. Danielle Smith says she supports trans kids and that she won't change her mind about her new policies for trans kids. Today, the Premier of Alberta held a press conference to answer questions about a video she posted last night in which she announced that Alberta will ban hormonal treatment, puberty blockers and gender-affirming surgery for children under 16. It will ban trans girls from girls' sports and it will require parental consent for changes to pronouns for students under 15. There was immediate reaction, in part because some of those measures are already common practice in Canada. For example, bottom surgery is not available for anyone under the age of 18 anywhere in the country. Earlier today in Calgary, Premier Smith was asked if this issue has been politicized in Canada. We're trying to um, to demonstrate that we understand that uh, beginning the process of transition is just one step. And there are other steps along the way that have serious consequences for kids. There has to be a certain level of maturity, of understanding the consequences, the full consequences of what that transition means. And then at age 18 is when, of course, a, a person becomes fully responsible for all of their decisions. So we we look at this as, as an entire package that we want to put forward so that we can make sure that we're giving the, the best support to kids and the best support to transitioning adults. You didn't answer that, but I'll try something else. Thanks. Um, 
do how do you reconcile or I'm trying to square the idea that you want to support these children in any in all journeys they want but also you're worried they're going to make a terrible mistake that's going to alter their life and make them unable to have sex how do those two come together well I, I mean are they I, making a mistake or are they do you support their journey I would say that we I support the journey of of adults who want to transition to another gender as uh, as far as um, as as they are adults and able to to accept the consequences of those decisions, I, I certainly do not want um, children to be making decisions before maybe they've even had sex about whether they want to to uh, to stop that aspect of their life. Alberta Premier Danielle Smith answering questions from CBC Calgary reporter Jason Markusov. Blaine Baduke is a member of the province's governing United Conservative Party and a trans woman. We reached her in Lethbridge, Alberta. Blaine, do you feel supported when you hear what you heard there? Partly and partly not. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a mixed bag of policies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I did really appreciate uh, something else Smith said on the press conference about addressing the gap in transgender health care, mm-hmm. and that is, that's huge. Um, what the same token, um, I don't know if the decisions about restrictions on HRT are the right policy mm-hmm. at this time. Well, I want to talk about both of those things that you mentioned, but I wonder for you personally, as a, as a member of the UCP, but also as a trans woman, does it feel complicated? to be both of those things? Yep. It's it's often innately complicated to be mm-hmm. um, a conservative and a, a trans person. However, I have met so many um, LGBTQ members of the conservative parties over the past year or so. And, you know, we are a bit tent parties. Uh, we do welcome everyone. So, you know, it's still my party for the time being. I'm still happy to be a part of it and to push push on the policies that mm-hmm. I want to see uh, while respecting that others in the party have completely different uh, perspectives. You, you did speak specifically at the party's annual general meeting back in November about something that came up again today as part of what the the premier is saying in terms of pronouns and informing parents when a student wants to use a different name or a different pronoun. Do you feel after hearing what you heard today from the premier that you were listened to? Simply based on the policy, no. Mm-hmm. Um, we all wait in implementation details. And, you know, I, as with any policy, I think the, um, these are details will really matter. I support the intent of building that strong parental child relationship that is fundamentally crucial for the well-being of every child being you know a teenager specifically it's a very emotional time a very um, meaningful time and with a lot of change and development and if the if a kid doesn't feel safe and supported at home then i have some questions about that Premier Smith did say, you know, that child protective services would be there. Well, we know the system doesn't always work. We know the system is underfunded, frankly. And we know specifically, for example, um, Indigenous youth 
have been thrown into the system time and time again. So it's simply trying to state that CPS is the solution to any potential problems is doing a disservice, I think, to the nuances and the realities. On the issue of surgery, which is a big part of this, of course, uh, what's known as bottom surgery is not available to anyone under 18 in Canada as it stands right now. Uh, Top surgery is only available in in rare cases to some 16-year-olds, you know, and and older. Why do you think the premier and other politicians, but specifically your premier, has made a point of including it? it? It's not possible anyway right now. Well, part of it, it's it's plain politics to start off with. It's nice and tentative to the base, you know, even though it's, as you said, it's not happening right now. Um, so it's just a nice, it's political football, um, which is unfortunate. But, you know, I think it was important as that's always a part of the conversation and the distinction between surgery and HRT, which oftentimes when we're talking about the medical decisions for transgender youth, there's all it's usually all slumped into one, and it's a really important distinction. You're weighing a lot right now, I can tell. Yeah, well, it's an extremely emotional time, um, and it's em- emotional as a trans woman, as a sort of, you know, I, as a former student teacher. Um, my issue, my bid policy issue has always been education, and supporting kids and um, when I see vulnerable kids being uh, not supported I I have concerns and I want to make sure that whatever procedures and policies and systems we have in place that will protect those most vulnerable in our society you mentioned earlier that this is still your party but you added the words for now are you hopeful that it will remain your party? Um, always hopeful. Um, I I truly believe that we are a bit ten parties. Um, where we are the whatever the UCP, it is this Y coalition. We have a diversity of opinion on lots of issues. What I hope is that um, moving past this, that you know, this is the one and only trans-related issue that we put on our address, and we're going to start moving forward on um, on fiscal priorities, on economic growth, and on um, making Alberta the freest province in the country. Um, those are core values that most Albertans will agree with, and uh, I'd like to see a government that really is laser-focused on those priorities. Blaine, thank you for your time. Thank you. Blaine Baduke is a member of the United Conservative Party. She's in Lethbridge, Alberta.
The sounds outside the European Union headquarters in Brussels today as farmers descended on the city along with an estimated 1,000 tractors. They set fires and set off firecrackers hitting police with eggs and beer bottles as they demanded the attention of leaders gathered at an EU summit. The demonstration follows weeks of protest across Europe as farmers call for more relief from government amid rising prices and fuel costs. Jose Maria Castilla's family owns a farm. He represents the Spanish farmers' union, Asaja. We reached him in Brussels. Jose, you've been in the middle of all of this, watching it unfold. What is happening around you right now? Describe it for our listeners. Yeah, uh, well, we enjoy this day because we initiate a really important and massive demonstration uh, here in the capital of Europe. So now is the time to change this madness and crazy policies that the European Commission one implements because they don't include us yeah. inside of these politics. I want to talk more about the, the policies, but just in terms of the scene there, you know, it, it got heated, certainly. Some protesters set fires, a statue was toppled, they threw firecrackers and beer bottles at police, and security forces responded with water cannon. Do you condone what unfolded there? I don't really want to focus on this because it was a cold day in Brussels, so just we burned some fire to be better with the condition of the weather, and that's true that maybe it was some balloon, something like this, but at the end it was a pacific day. Mm-hmm. I, I don't I don't think that it was really important to, you, well, pol- uh, to be honest. People there or police yeah. may, may disagree, but you're saying it was the majority of the time it was peaceful. Yeah, sometimes you don't know who are in the middle of the demonstration, but let's say that 99% of the people was peaceful and making the demonstration respectfully. Tell our listeners specifically what your message was. We are not against the European Union. We are against the politics that the European Union is making. So that's the first point. Second one, we are not against of the Green Deal and these kind of things. No, we want to have the possibility to achieve these objectives. So give us new extra money from the CAP. It's the common agriculture policy. You know, mm-hmm. it's quite similar to the farm bill in the States, for instance. We need also more time. 2030 is so close, and this is why we are asking to arrive to 2050. So you want you want more time, just on that last point to be clear, more time, yeah, to, time to learn and adopt money, fresh money, you want and tools to adopt the new the new technologies or yeah. prepare for new technologies. In terms of the timing, uh, yesterday Ursula von der Leyen asked member states to delay things by by a year on one key rule. Why are those concessions not enough? Because um, it's too late. Because the the calendar to when you want to make a crop. Uh, it's on. So um, this measure is going to apply the next year. So we need a better understanding about how it's working these yeah. new playing fields and uh, this new cross compliance, because if not, we are completely loose. And we need also to teach the farmers how is the best way to implement this new uh, way to make agriculture. How many years would you need? You know, in that one instance I mentioned, uh, Ursula von der Leyen, it was a one-year delay. To complete, one year isn't enough. Yeah, uh, not, not, not really. We need to uh, to maintain these exemption rules until the new CAP that is going to be in 2027. On the issue of timing, you know, you said you you and the other farmers uh, support a green deal. You're not against it, but others around the world who are concerned, including obviously in Europe, about 
the climate crisis. They say there is no more time to waste. What do you say in response to that argument? Well, if you want to increase my um, activity to achieve the goals of the Green Deals, at least give me some tools. I need new tools. I need new technology. I'm completely sure if Europe decides to create a new legislation to regulate this technology, probably we can adapt uh, or we can achieve the goals uh, more quickly. What kind of farm do you have? Well, um, uh, my family has uh, a farm uh, producing cereals, uh, producing also sunflowers and also Iberian ham. How have, have you and your family seen your costs change? You know, What does it look like on your balance sheet in terms of the accounts that, that is fueling some of your concern here? Well, that, that's a really good question, an important one, because um, let's say that every single year you receive a money from the CAP, all right? Uh-huh. Just to help to you to maintain your income. Right. But this year, with the new CAP that have been implemented, uh, there is a decrease of between 20 or 30% of our payments. Mm-hmm. The subsidies have come yeah, down. That's it. And how does that affect your operations to lose that subsidy? Well, it's affect a lot because now you don't have a, a certainty to make a business plan. You don't know if you are available or not to change your tractor, if you want to invest in some new mechanism to make more productive your fields. So it's a a huge uncertainty Mm -hmm. in your future and in your numbers, definitely. You know, you said you you and the other farmers weren't consulted. You weren't a part of this process. Do you think they have heard you today? I think that, yeah, we had some meetings with important people on on the commission, also with politicians. And I don't know if they are believing or not in ourselves, in our petition, but the reality is European elections are coming. So now all of them want to be reelected. So now I need to take advantage of this situation and try to get as much as possible. What happens tomorrow? Well, we are are going to be also on the streets around Europe, in different countries, asking for our demands. It's not the ending or nothing. It's just the start. I'm glad we could speak, Jose. Thank you. Okay, it was a pleasure. So um, keep fighting. Jose Maria Castilla represents the Spanish farmers' union Asaja. We reached him in Brussels. Bright light said it gonna set my soul, gonna set my soul on fire. Got a whole lot of money that's ready to burn, so get those stakes up higher. There's a thousand pretty women waiting out there. They're all living the devil may care. And I am just a devil with love to spare. So Viva Las Vegas! In the movie Viva Las Vegas, Elvis Presley stars as the plausibly named Lucky Jackson, full-time race car driver, part-time rock and roll singer. And when Lucky hits the town in Las Vegas, he goes to the casino and hotel known as the Tropicana. And when James Bond was looking for accommodation in Diamonds Are Forever, guess where he stayed? I hear that the hotel Tropicana is quite comfortable. In The Godfather, when Michael Corleone has a sit-down with casino boss Mo Green, that action went down at the Tropicana. Your casino loses money. Maybe we can do better. You think I'm skimming off the top, Mike? You're unlucky. 
Well, Mo Green is not the only one out of luck. If you want to live like a mob boss or a spy or a full-time race car driver slash part-time rock and roll singer, you won't be able to do it at the Tropicana after April 1st. After six decades of seedy glamour, the Tropicana is shutting down for good. In its place will be built a new resort and Major League Ballpark, the future home of the Oakland A's. Michael Green is a historian with the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and one of the board of directors of the city's Mob Museum. We reached him in Las Vegas. Michael, we know Hollywood loved the Tropicana. What does it mean to you? Well, it means a few things. I grew up in Las Vegas, and I was born a few years after it opened, so it's always been there. Uh, So as a Las Vegan, I feel a great nostalgia, the idea that this place I'm used to seeing won't be there. Uh, As a historian and a historic preservationist, it pains me. But I also understand that the Tropicana is an older property. Uh, The owners see an opportunity, and uh, that's part of the heritage of Las Vegas as well, reinvention and tearing down and rebuilding. And money. Uh, Money does enter into this situation, (laughs) doesn't it? Just a little, just a little. (laughs) Uh, Well, and at the time, in 1957, when it opened, I I didn't know it had been referred to as the Tiffany of the Strip, uh, the most expensive hotel ever built in Vegas at the time. Speaking of money, there were also links to the mob to organize crime. Frank Costello, the gangster. I know, it's going to be shocking to a lot of people. We are blowing the (laughs) lid off of a lot of uh, Las Vegas secrets right now. Frank Costello, the gangster, uh, had a role, certainly, in the early days of the Tropicana. What was that role? Well, it's always hard to figure out exact roles uh, because uh, there's an old line that organized crime saved a lot of money on stationery. Uh, they didn't like to write things down. <laughs> yeah. But the, the people who were behind it, one was from the Fontainebleau in Miami, which normally meant there was some tie somewhere to Meyer Lansky. And the main guy, he was called Dandy Phil Castell. So usually if there's a nickname, there's probably a mobster. And in this case, Costello, as the so-called prime minister of organized crime in New York, he's kind of overseeing things. And about three weeks or so after the Tropicana opened, somebody shot Costello. It was not fatal, but he goes down on a street in New York City. And the police come to check him out. And in the process, they check his pockets. And there's a piece of paper. Remember what I said about writing things Mm -hmm. down? You don't write things down. So on the piece of paper were some numbers, and it turned out they were the numbers that the Tropicana was about to report to the state as its revenues for the first three weeks. Mm -hmm. And when Frank Costello has that in his pocket before the state of Nevada has it, I think it says something. Was the word skim written on it, or was it just a a thinking? (laughs) It should have been. It really should have been. But, you know, this is what it was really like that years later when a corporate type, Kirk Kerkorian, owned the Flamingo and made his first report of his earnings, the state hauled him in and said, what are you doing? We've never seen this much money come out of the Flamingo. And it finally hit everybody. You know, Kerkorian wasn't skimming. So uh, I, I shudder to think what the actual numbers were. I can only imagine. Uh, there were legal <laughs> troubles in the 1970s. Uh There was mob involvement at that time as well. But what did that look like? Well, uh, the Tropicana was an odd one in that it started out as mob controlled. And then the mob didn't run it well. And locals came in and they ran it. Uh, 
And eventually, those who were in charge, it was the Housel's family, J. Kell Housel Sr. and Jr., sold to somebody who then sold to somebody. And by the late 70s, the owner was a chemical heiress named Mitzi Stauffer Briggs in Stauffer Chemical. And she really didn't know anything about gambling. I mean, she was just involved. And the Kansas City mob had gotten in on the action through some loans with the Teamsters and some other means. And it turned out that uh, one of the guys in the casino named Carl Thomas, who everybody had been holding up as the new breed, he was clean. And when they were investigating the Kansas City mob and had wiretaps, they got a wiretap of Thomas explaining how to skim to the Kansas City mob (laughs) bosses. Then the guy who produced the show in the showroom, the Foley Berger, the ostensible producer, uh, was named Joe Augusto, which was actually a name he had taken to hide his background, uh, which was, in fact, mob all the way. Uh, This Augusto character had actually been clean, but that's why he took his name. And Augusto's job was to help keep an eye on things, make sure the skim operated. And the wiretaps that I mentioned essentially enabled federal officials to find out what was really going on with the skimming. And so they are indicting people. State officials force them out. And the Tropicana becomes a corporate-owned hotel casino in the early 80s, which is the time, really, you see the mob driven out of power in the Las Vegas casinos. How do you feel about what it's going to look like that MLB, Major League Baseball, made them this offer and that's what's going to be there? On the one hand, I have to say as a baseball fan, <laughs> my feelings might be a little different. Okay. Uh, it, hurt, it hurts in the sense that it is an important piece of our history. But yeah, how do you compete with the people on the same corner? A baseball team with a nice stadium, uh, it fits with what happens on the Las Vegas Strip, and uh, there's no escaping that. But does what happens in Las Vegas still stay in Las Vegas? Does that still hold? uh, I think it does, uh, although I'm talking to you in Canada, so uh, (laughs) something's getting out. (laughs) Michael, a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Michael Green sits on the board of directors of the Mob Museum and is a professor of history at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. We've all been told that when life gives us lemons, we should make lemonade, usually by some jerk who has just figuratively buried us up to our necks in lemons. It's at the point where that expression itself is one of the lemons that life gives us. Meanwhile, life hardly ever gives us literal lemons, and if it does, there's probably something wrong with them. Quality lemons are not free. In fact, some of them will cost you $2,400 Canadian. Granted, I am talking about a special lemon, a lemon that was found in the bottom drawer of a 19th century cabinet belonging to a family in Shropshire, England, a lemon that dates back to the year 1739. How do we know that? Well, you know how when we buy lemons, we all carve a message and the date into the rind? Like, uh, okay, well, let me check the studio lemon cabinet here. Right. See, written on this one is for Neil from Chris, December 2022. <laughs> Happy birthday. This is also your Christmas present. It's normal. normal. And on that 285-year-old lemon is inscribed, given by Mr. P. Lou Francini, November 4th, 1739, to Miss E. Baxter. A wonderful romantic gesture. Or 
a threat. I don't know what inscribed lemons meant back then. Anyway, earlier this month, the auctioneers selling the cabinet thought that they'd auction the old lemon off separately just for fun. The cabinet sold for $55, but in the end, there were 35 bids for the wizened lemon, and the winning bid was the equivalent of $2,400 Canadian. That's fun for the winner, I hope, because if they just got overexcited, that is going to leave a sour taste in their mouth. Not literally. There is no juice at all left in that thing. I make a mean lemonade. I should take that one. You think it's still fresh? That one, I think Should we preserve it? You're not so in 200 years, hold, someone right. can yeah, spend... That's right, yeah, let Lock that it's cupboard up. Your, your, almost two years. <laughs> hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. Nothing will bring the 11 victims of the mass stabbing at the James Smith Cree Nation back, but the coroner's inquest into what happened is meant to paint a full picture of what happened when Miles Sanderson went on his killing spree to prevent another incident like it from happening again. Now, after days of at times very painful testimony, the jury and the coroner have released their recommendations. Brian Buggy Burns' son Gregory and wife Bonnie died that day in September 2022. Daryl Burns is Bonnie's brother. Here's some of what they both had to say. My sister, uh, Jonji and Bonnie, they didn't die for nothing. Do you feel that way, buddy? Yep, I feel the same way. Yeah, I feel the same way. Yeah, I feel the same way. I feel happy that there's good recommendations there, positive. Like I said, just help me sleep at night since this inquest started. Like getting up in the middle of the night, crying and wondering mm-hmm. all the and views and whatnot, you know. And yeah, I feel better now, like, weight lifted off of my shoulders. But you know, like, there's still a couple more recommendations I would like to see, but, but I'm happy, like, at least they got honored. Brian Buggy Burns, and before him, Daryl Burns, speaking to reporters. Chelsea Stonestand is Buggy's niece. She had standing at the inquest on behalf of their family. She lives and works in James Smith Cree Nation. We reached her today in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Chelsea, is that how you feel as well? You know, when your relatives say Bonnie and Gregory did not die for nothing? Absolutely. Um, I think all living things have meaning. So, of course, their lives and deaths have meaning. They've made their mark in James Smith and Weldon, as I'm speaking to all the victims. But they also made their mark on this world um, because of them and the contributing factors behind their deaths. People have more insight into the bigger issues in our systems. I want, and I want to talk about all of that and the recommendations as well and, and what you think of them. But how are you doing? You know, there's the there's a sitting through the, the testimony. Then there's the bracing for the recommendations. Then you see them. And there's the onslaught of the media and the conversations that you have. So how are you feeling today, personally? I'm still 
trying to take it all in. I'm still having to think on my feet and to be mindful of my family, being mindful of all the families in James Smith and mindful of all the people that are watching my community and Indigenous people and how we handle this situation and move forward. So it hasn't quite fully set in yet. Yeah, you're still carrying a lot on your shoulders and trying to represent, it sounds like. Can you tell us a, a bit about Bonnie and Gregory? Yeah, Bonnie, she had a heart of gold. She was there for anybody. She loved her family so much. She loved taking her boys to powwows. She wanted to help out in any way she could at any time of the day. Is there is there an example that, that you can share? Absolutely. Whenever it came to, like, say, community events where we needed food prepped um, for a wake, for a celebration, Bonnie was right there. You didn't even have to ask her. She just stepped up to the plate. On the issues that came out at the inquest, we know the killer had a criminal history he, he was wanted and at large when the attacks took place, but the community was unaware. Uh, we heard about you know prison systems, federally and provincially, domestic abuse, intergenerational trauma, mental health and addictions, First Nations policing, so many layers to, to get through and difficult to hear and discuss, I'm sure. But in the end, are you satisfied with these recommendations? I am as much as I could be. They're not perfect and... There are other areas that need change, and um, one of them is the parole board. In this inquest, we recognized you know, 80% of offenders are Indigenous, and there are only 9 out of 72 parole board members who are Indigenous. And so that disparity speaks to our representation that is missing in the larger systems that affect our people. So that's, that's something you, you wish had been addressed further. Absolutely, yes. In terms of what is covered, is there something that stood out to you and gave you a little bit of peace or solace that you thought, okay, this is something tangible that that might actually change things? I think just the amount of detail that went into every recommendation. An example at the top of mind right now would be, you know, proper signage on our homes and on our rural roads within First Nations communities because it doesn't just happen in James Smith. Those issues Mm -hmm. are in other Indigenous communities. And so people will probably follow suit once they see our nation stepping up to that recommendation. Some relatives of of the victims also have been talking about understandably, the mix of emotions they're feeling, not just about the recommendations, but about the person who carried out these crimes, who killed your loved ones, after they heard more about his life at the inquest. How do you view him now? I don't think my view of him has ever really changed. I've tried to stay neutral throughout this whole process, and part of that is from my education. I have some knowledge of the justice system. And so when you think of also my history in regards to intergenerational trauma, I have a full picture of how someone like Miles could have been destined to do something like this because he had no chance from a young age. It was right there in the inquest. He was abused from a young age. But in addition to that, the psychological piece that was presented at the inquest is 
something that I think people will always have in the back of their minds. So was Miles manipulating the system and the people that he worked with? And I don't think anyone can have complete certainty if he was or he wasn't. In September of 2022, as all of this unfolded, on this show, I had a conversation with Bonnie's brother, Mark, and I remember that he said, don't forget about us. Don't forget about our community. Do you feel that listeners and Canadians through this inquest remember and understand? Yes, I do. But I don't know if I would feel that way if I wasn't there supporting my uncle. Because many people from across Canada and the world have reached out to me personally and said, I've been following your community, I've been listening to you on the news, and that brings some comfort that I know it's not just people locally to us, it's internationally as well. Well, I hope you get some time after all of these interviews and conversations, uh, Chelsea, to grieve and, and let it sink in, as you've said. I really appreciate your time today, though. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Bye-bye. Chelsea Stonestand is the niece of Bonnie Burns and the cousin of Gregory Burns. She's in Saskatoon. has its own groundhog, the famous Fred La Marmotte. <laughs> Early this morning, tragedy struck when Fred passed away on Groundhog Day. So it turns out he did see a shadow, but it was just the icy hand of death. <laughs> Stephen Colbert relating the heartbreaking and apparently hilarious news a year ago tomorrow out of Val d'Espoir, Quebec. Last year, the community's Groundhog Day celebrations were less than celebratory when, instead of watching Fred make his annual prediction, people watched an event organizer break the news of his untimely end. But the shadow show must go on. So this year, for the 15th edition of the event, a new Fred Lamarmotte is waiting to step in. René Laurendeau is one of the event organizers. We reached her in Saint-Gabriel-de-Gaspé, Quebec. Renee, I think it's important to ask straight away, is this new Fred still alive? Well, so far, yes, <laughs> definitely. We, we, last year, it was a really bad surprise. Yeah. And, you know, we usually let them sleep. But this year, we kind of checked a little more. <laughs> How often? Sure yeah. When was the last time someone checked? Uh, last week. Okay. Well, hopefully things have all continued well oh, over the last several days. We'll see what happens tomorrow. But if we go back a bit, did did this Fred have to audition? What is the selection process like for such an important position? Well, he had to get used to human being. Right. So basically, we go to see him and, and we take care of him and feed him and get closer and closer. And then after a while, he get used to human being and then it's possible to have him out to do the prediction. Right. So so this Fred felt comfortable with people and you think that uh, Fred is up to the challenge? I think so. He might be a little nervous because he's not used to that many people. Yeah. But you have to understand that we don't awake him 
way ahead of time mm-hmm. because the groundhog, they sleep when there is a certain temperature. And what happened is that they're sleeping and we warm them a little bit up to the time where they awake. And then he does the prediction and then back into his condo to sleep for the rest <laughs> of the winter. Understood. You want it to happen sort of as naturally, I guess, as possible, it sounds like. Well, yes, we really want him to be yeah. as well as possible. Do you think he might be feeling any uh, you know, pressure to, to perform here? Because the last Fred had a great track record, 10 out of 13 times. Fred was correct. So do you think this one... This one might be a little bit worried about. It will depend on the weather. We never know. You know the meteorologists around the world and in Canada don't love (laughs) this day that's coming up tomorrow. What do you say to those (laughs) who dislike all of the attention that Fred and his colleagues get? Well, maybe they're a little jealous. And also maybe they're a little jealous because Fred so far has the best record. They're even better than all those (laughs) stations. So Tough talk. (laughs) All right. It's elbows up. We're the best. (laughs) When you... (laughs) No pretension. We're the best. I like it. Uh, You know, you mentioned a moment ago that you want to make sure that that Fred is okay and you take care of him. His condo is all set up. But, you know, animal activists have some concerns as well. They've said, you know, why not use children? And last year you did do that after after the other Fred's unexpected passing. The the kid Mm -hmm. was in a the child was an emergency replacement. Why not use a child again? Well, the tradition is the groundhog. Everybody's expecting the groundhog. And, you know, we we awake him very slowly, very nicely, and he does his prediction. He goes back to sleep. I'm not sure he even remember he'd done it. <laughs> Just comes naturally. You're fine. <laughs> yeah. But, well, I mean... Yeah. You... Well, well we're, we're very we're very concerned about his comfort. Sure. We, we make sure, like, you know, in the summer, he has a large, large place to play. He can dig. He can do... He has a, a regular groundhog life. What about the child? Do they get all this pampering too? Well, the child is going to be there this year. You know that. Even Stephen Colbert on the Late Late Show. Uh Our listeners just heard a little bit of it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And he was nice enough. He inquired who the child was and (laughs) and he sent him gifts. And one of the things is a hat, just like Phil. But Phil, yeah. the child is going to be on the stage with his hat, and he's, he's going to be the one who's going to do the prediction. The child will but. announce the prediction that is made by Fred, to be clear. Right. So as press agent for Fred, that's a that's a tough job, I can only imagine. So do you feel like tomorrow you'll be able to relax a little bit once it's all done? Well, after then, we have a look to what our effect was in the world. Because we're seen all over the world. It's really crazy. It's hard to believe that that little tiny thing that we started 15 years ago is now spread so much all over the place. So after, yes, we relax. And then just a little sip of wine and a little relaxing time. Renee, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. René Laurando is the self-described press agent for Fred Lamarmotte, Val d'Espoir's esteemed groundhog. We reached her in nearby Saint-Gabriel-de-Gaspé, Quebec. 
If more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. So says Thorin Oakenshield to Bilbo Baggins in The Hobbit. And it's true, but in what's becoming a theme on the show this week, there are arguments for hoarding too. Among them, the possibility that you might one day discover among all your your many possessions a rare first edition copy of that beloved J.R.R. Tolkien novel. It's what recently happened to one of Richard Madley's neighbors, and since he is an auctioneer known for appearing on the BBC's Bargain Hunt, they figured Mr. Madley might know a thing or two about the find. We reached Richard Madley in Bath. Richard, how did your neighbor come to own this 1937 copy of The Hobbit? Uh, Well, he was uh, asked by his wife to go out uh, to the local car boot sale one Mm -hmm. Sunday morning um, to buy some books to go on the bookshelves which he was going to build either side of the of the fireplace. Um, so it was a very open order, buy some books, bring them home, <laughs> and build a bookcase. And uh, that's what he did. And, and this was just for decoration, not even, you know, books that they uh, that they like. Uh, purely, yeah, he was, he was going to select them on colour. He wanted oh, some, no. uh, some green books and some red books. And, um, uh, yeah, it was purely decorative. It didn't matter what the content oh. was. Well, that hurts my book reading hard, but the story is still an interesting one. So how much did he pay for this copy? Oh, well, there was, it was, there was a box of books mm-hmm. on the floor uh, below somebody's car, uh, and the entire box was priced at £2. And being the dealing sort of fellow that he is, he said, well, I'll give you a pound for them. Uh, and the uh, owner said, no, they settled at £1.50. Oh and in this box of books, I think there were between 10 and 15 bo- books. Um, so you're talking a few cents per volume. The thing is that he, he had no idea. Yeah. The buyer had no idea. The seller obviously had no idea. In fact, the buyer put them in the boot of his car, drove them home and put them in his garage, and they stayed there for five years. They didn't even make uh, it onto the decorative bookshelf. <laughs> they, he, hadn't built, he hadn't built the bookshelves, <laughs> and it wasn't until five years later that he eventually finished the bookshelves that his wife said, why don't you go into the garage now and get out those books that you bought five years ago uh, and get them placed on the bookshelves? And he pulled out the box, and he looked at it and thought, hmm, that's interesting. Hmm, The Hobbit. Well, he's, he'd heard of Hobbit. He'd heard of The Hobbit, the movie. Um, J.R. Tolkien rang a bell, but he, yeah, was, maybe. he was not a man who read books or even collected them. And then he thought, I'll just get online and have a little Google. And he had a little Google and thought, yeah. this could be interesting. So he knocked on my door. Yeah, and so what do you value it at, do you think? What's well, what do I, 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 I phoned a friend. I phoned a friend <laughs> who is a specialist book auctioneer, uh, and he said to me that judging by the condition and the quality of this book, he thought it could make conservatively between 6000 and £8,000 sterling uh, at auction. Not a bad return on investment, even an unintended uh, investment, that's for there sure. There you go, from uh, yeah, £1.50 up to perhaps £8,000. I don't come across those sort of bargains yeah that often. It's so just clarify something for us. As I understand it, it's a second impression of the first edition yes. of this book. So the, 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 fir- the, first, the first edition uh, came out, I think, in a, around about 
July of 1937, uh, and, and it, it sold out immediately. And so quickly, they made, they made a second impression. So it, had this been a first impression, first printing, then, oh my goodness, it could have been worth... I don't know, thirty, forty, fifty thousand pounds. Yeah, let's not be greedy. I mean, this is still this is still Correct. exciting. Uh, on one hand, this is a bargain hunter or or buyer's dream that you're going to find that thing that someone didn't know is worth so much money. We have those conversations all the time on the show. On the other hand, it is a seller's nightmare. Have they been in touch? Well, yeah, you know, the, you know, the the reasons for people you know selling at a carpet. So they, you know, they could be. Uh, Settling an estate for a relative, they could have been asked to, you know, to, to clear the property. That that they could have been these books could have been knocking around for you know, for for years before they go to the car boot sale. I mean, there's various reasons why they you know that they are sold in that market. It's not it's not a great place uh, uh, to sell, especially when you know, technology now allows you to 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 photograph um, anything and send it off to an auctioneer. You know, yeah. they could have sent the photograph to a book specialist. Who would have told them you know, how valuable it was? But oh. you know, that's why we all, you know, why people get up early in the morning and go to car boot <laughs> yeah. sales. They go to charity shops because they are looking for that undiscovered treasure. And what's unusual about this is that we're sharing the story with your listeners before it's even appeared on the open market. You know, the owner might decide to keep it. Yeah, maybe I'll but, sit on it a little more. Let's see if the value goes up. Hey, you think he'll read it now? <laughs> Uh, do you know what? I doubt it. He's not that sort of kind of fellow. You know, it'll take, be taking pride of place in the bookshelves that took five years to build. Uh, and his I wife bet. will be very happy. He got up early that <laughs> Sunday morning. Good thing he listened to his wife. Let me, as you all, as everyone should. Let me ask you, though, you know, earlier this week, as I said, we, we do a lot of these kinds of stories. And just this week, we talked about a box of hockey cards completely unopened that could actually be worth millions. We don't want to give the people the impression that they should, you know, Never throw anything away. But what is your advice to people who are wondering whether they should hang on to something or say goodbye to it? Well, these these sort of discoveries, your hockey cards and my uh, Hobbit, are well, they're not once in a lifetime, but they're not far off. You know, there's a reason why something is valuable. It is either rare or it is ex. Um, most of the things that most people have in their houses have been mass-produced, you know, be they pottery or porcelain or books. But it's, it is very rare to find that first edition or that complete set of hockey cards. I would say 999 times out of a 1,000, you're just looking at decorative or sentimental yeah. value. Yeah. Do a little research before you put it out on the curb. But yes, also, right. also prune when necessary. Uh, Richard, thank you. This was fun. Been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Richard Madley is an auctioneer and British television personality. We reached him in Bath, England. Whether or not you're familiar with Bilbo Baggins and his adventures in Middle Earth, fighting goblins, dining with elves, and battling Smaug the Dragon, the idea of dropping 8,000 pounds on a book is a fantasy to most of us. But here is a free reminder of the magic that lives within the pages of The Hobbit. From 1981, here is Scottish actor Nicol Williamson reading from that classic novel. This first aired on the CBC Radio children's program, Anybody Home. It picks up right after Bilbo Baggins places Gollum's precious ring on his finger. His head was in a whirl of hope and wonder. It seemed that the ring he had was a magic ring. 
it made you invisible. There it was. Gollum, with his bright eyes, had passed him by only a yard to one side. On they went, Gollum flip-flapping ahead, hissing and cursing. They came to where side passages opened, this way and that. Gollum began at once to count them. One left, yes. One right, yes. Two right, yes, yes. And so on and on. As the count grew, he slowed down and began to get shaky and weepy. He was leaving the water further and further behind, and he was getting afraid. Goblins might be about, and he had lost his ring. At last, he stopped by a low opening on the left as they went up. Seven right, yes. Six left, yes, he whispered. This is it. This is the way to the back door, yes. But we dursn't go that way, precious. No, we dursn't. Goblins is down there. We smells them. We must wait here, precious. Wait a bit and see. So here they were. Gollum had brought Bilbo to the way out after all, but Bilbo could not get past. There was Gollum sitting humped up right in the opening, and his eyes gleamed cold in his head as he swayed it from side to side. Bilbo almost stopped breathing. He was desperate. He must get away out of this horrible darkness while he had any strength left. He must fight. He must stab the foul thing, put its eyes out, kill it. It meant to kill him. No, not a fair fight. He was invisible now. Gollum had no sword. Gollum had not actually threatened to kill him, or tried to yet. And he was miserable, alone, lost. A sudden understanding, a pity mixed with horror, welled up in Bilbo's heart. A glimpse of endless, unmarked days without light or hope, hard stone, cold fish, sneaking and whispering. All these thoughts passed in a flash of a second. He trembled. And then, quite suddenly, in another flash, as if lifted by a new strength and resolve, he leapt. No great leap for a man, but a leap in the dark. Straight over Gollum's head, he jumped. From 1981, that was Nicole Williamson reading an excerpt from J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit on the CBC show Anybody Home. It's not much to look at right now, just a derelict old outdoor stage surrounded by soggy grass and a chain-link fence. But to members of Windsor, Ontario's black community, the Jackson Park bandshell is a vital piece of city history and one that deserves to look a whole lot better than it does. That's why our guest was watching a city council vote closely this week. In the end, councillors ordered further study of what a feasibility study into the landmark's restoration would cost. That's Obviously not a yes, but crucially, it's not a no. And for Leslie McCurdy, that's encouraging. She's a Windsor activist and artist who's been part of the campaign to revitalize the bandshell. We reached her in Windsor. Leslie, the pictures I've seen of the Jackson Park bandshell today don't paint the prettiest picture. But if we were to go back in time, what did that bandshell look and sound like when it was at its best? Oh, my gosh, it was a great performance venue for, I mean, we had a, a battle of the bands that came here every year that 
was held there, the emancipation celebrations, the famous emancipation celebrations that were held in Windsor from like the 1930s to late 1960s were on that stage. I mean, I personally, aging myself now, <laughs> I personally remember um, seeing like fashion shows on there and people speaking and dances and just all kinds of things. And, and big names traveled through there. Oh, yeah. I mean... Most of the people, most of the stars from Motown were discovered on that stage in the talent contest that were held at the Emancipation Celebration. There's a story that goes to Windsor about a group of men that actually beat the Temptations in the talent contest and were supposed to sign with Motown, but one of them's mother said no, so none of them did it. (laughs) Do we know that that's true or that's just become, you know, lore? Yeah, no, I think it's true. I know that, you know, some of the people are still alive. Why hasn't it been kept up or preserved? from a historic standpoint, do you think? Um, for a, from a historic standpoint, I think after the riots in Detroit, there seemed to be very little interest in having some 100 to 150,000 um, black people mm-hmm. coming from all over North America to Windsor. This despite the, the fact that it was an economic mm-hmm. engine to the, for the middle of the summer, people were afraid of black people. Um, and I think it's just really easy to forget about things that have to do with black people, particularly when the population is very large. At one time, because Windsor was one of the main endpoints of the Underground Railroad, the black population was like one-third of the population of Windsor, mm-hmm. but now we're like 6%. Mm-hmm. So we're really easy to overlook and forget and to discount. And um, there was a lot of activity that took place in this area between here and Buxton and Chatham, really important historic endeavors. And the Emancipation Celebration and, by extension, the Bandshell are reminders of all of that. Mm. This has been a long fight for, for not just you to, to restore the Bandshell, but what was the starting point for you to get involved? Well, I've been involved off and on for a, a number of years. Um, I am a part of an organization in Windsor called the Black Council of Windsor-Essex that has been trying to follow a long line of attempts by other people and other organizations Mm -hmm. before us to revitalize the emancipation celebrations in of themselves. And as a part of our celebration, we sort of go to Jackson Park for a a family gathering, unofficially, because you can't go there officially. Um, And as part of that, we offer um, tours, led by the Essex County Black Historical Research Society to the side of Jackson Park where the emancipation celebrations used to be held and to that bandshell. And the thought was that if people learned about it and saw the bandshell, they might, too, be more interested in preserving it. Mm-hmm. And actually, that's how Kieran McKenzie learned about it, mm-hmm. a person really behind this on city council. Um, and when he said, listen, I'm going to go ahead and, you know, see what I can do, then we're all like, yay, thank you. <laughs> Come on. So everybody who has been trying, you know, through these various ways individually, we've sort of all collected together now and are, are, you know, trying to join him in this push to get this done. And it's, like I said, it's not just the black community, the performance community. Like there are bands in Windsor that remember the Battle of the Bands that Mm -hmm. would like to have that open again. There are some cultural groups and things that would love to see that open again. I've had people tell me they would have their wedding there if it was open again. So there's uh, quite a bit of interest within the community at large, outside and above and beyond the black community, in revitalizing that space and making it something that some, Windsor could be really proud of. Uh, as you likely know, those who who are against this, you know, they're saying cost is a concern. Uh, they say that the Banshell uh, abuts a field, a playing field, owned by the district school board. 
there's a lack of rigging infrastructure and other on-site amenities. So to those who say it's it's nice as an idea but not feasible, well, what would you say to them? I would say there's a difference between a cost and an investment. I've been trying to say for a while that what I find in Windsor, when we are right across from Detroit, basically the center of North America as far as um, you know traffic passing mm-hmm. through and stuff. And, you know, I, I'm an artist, I'm an actor, and I was in New York where they, they were talking about the $500 billion that the theater industry there generates. And I said, like, I know that we are not New York, but New York had to start somewhere. New York didn't always have a $5 billion theater industry there. People go through Windsor to go to Stratford for theater, to go to Niagara-on-the-Lake for theater, to go to Toronto for theater. And with the proper investment, as I say, this could become a little theater district here in Windsor, and maybe we can stop people for a day or two. My, mm-hmm. my son asked me, if you had a friend coming to Windsor for two days, what would you tell them to do? Go to Detroit. Why? Because there's nothing in Windsor. It's time for us to start investing in stuff in Windsor. And maybe we can start attracting people to come to Windsor. I can imagine that you've imagined in your mind See, what that thing. stage might look like when, if it were to, to be revitalized and reopened, what would I that initial imagine. celebration look like? Yes, and that's the big thing. I can imagine, and I've been trying to get other people to imagine. And to me, my I see concerts, I see plays, I see graduations from high schools, I see, like I said, weddings, the emancipation yeah. celebration again. And your own you know? art? My own, yes, I've actually said I do. Um, I've, for 27 years, I've been doing a one-woman play about Harriet Tubman. And I've been saying I'm going to put that away sometime. Well, I, I said three years, but now I'm thinking five years because the thought of never doing the play again really just breaks my heart. But I think it would be amazing if I could perform my last show on that stage. You know, by then I'd love to be able to say, look, there are all kinds of neat things to do in my city. Please stay. <laughs> Leslie, a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. You too. Thank you very much. I appreciate you as well. Take care. You too. Leslie McCurdy is an activist and actor from Windsor, Ontario. That's where we reached her. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksal. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.